Short Rounds. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and welcome to yet another bonus short round. If you don't know, I tend to do these in the middle of or at the end of series to deliver additional info or go on tangents I didn't have time to dole out in the middle of the series. This short round is one of those where I address a viewpoint I didn't have room to fit into the broader narrative. Today's episode is Women of the Philippine War. Now I'll admit, so far this series has been kind of a bro-fest, right? Lots of men doing things, not a lot of women. And this is largely a product of the age, unavoidable. See, this is one of those periods in military history where women were supposed to be treated like china dolls. Fragile little things that must be shielded from violence. Yeah, okay, go tell that to Najinga of Nadongo or Nell Butler or Maria Bochkareva. But despite the role society forced on them, women did participate in the Philippine War, but in a more limited capacity than, say, the Crimean War. And their experiences varied dramatically. American women were pro- and anti-imperialist. They were army wives and nurses and teachers, and they were in the Philippines during this war. But there was another side. Filipinas were camp followers, supporters, nurses, organizers, even warriors. They broke through their own restrictive gender roles. But when it came to American and Filipina women, there would always be a divide, a chasm between the experience of the imperializer and the imperialized. The more subtle realities of American empire emerge when we look at the women of the Philippine War. As always, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. All my sources are in the big Philippine War source post at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want to fact check me, there you go. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real women who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. The United States in the late 19th century was in the grip of Victorian-era gender roles. Americans were obsessed with the difference between masculine and feminine. Boys belong in this box, girls in this box. There's occasional waves of like gender crisis and gender panic in American history. You could argue we're living through one today. We've heard the emphasis Teddy Roosevelt placed on America behaving manly in a manly way, taking up its manly duty. There was a constant paranoia that American men were becoming too weak and feminine, women becoming too rough and manly. America was in an age of crisis, including the crisis of masculinity, which had never been so strong and so fragile. And this hypersensitivity was stoked by a rising tide of challenge to these gender roles, including alternate sexualities, free love societies, the behavior of the Mormon church, the LDS church in Utah, and of course the suffragettes, the feminists. In an age where men were supposed to like wrestle bears naked and stuff, and women were expected to faint on couches if the phone rang or something, the feminists were a massive challenge to the status quo. American feminism was still a fringe movement, hammering away at its number one priority, women's suffrage, as in women's right to vote. The largest women's organization of the late 19th century was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which associated suffrage with Christian morality and social reform. The WCTU argued that women's domestic instincts and peaceful nature made their voices important and necessary in the governance of the country. The WCTU was in favor of prohibition of alcohol, labor reform, public health, and international peace, but they were also ferociously anti-abortion. 1890s politics really don't track to the modern day, like I keep reminding you. When the Philippine War broke out, many feminist leaders tended to support it. 
They were pro-imperialist. The two suffragist powerhouses of the era were BFFs Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They, and many of their comrades, saw American empire in the Philippines as the vanguard of civilization and progress. They identified far more with the ideals of progressive imperialism than with the anti-imperialist cause. Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, I am strongly in favor of this new departure in American foreign policy. What would this continent have been if left to the Indians? Susan B. Anthony concurred. She said, The only way to get out of this war is to go through with it. It is nonsense to talk about giving those guerrillas in the Philippines their liberty. If we did, the first thing they would do would be to murder and pillage every white person on the island, Spanish and American alike. Despite being the guiding lights of women's rights in this era, Anthony and Stanton bought into the racist assumptions of the imperialist ideal, the white man's burden. Gosh, I am ruining all the historical heroes and heroines in this series. Some feminists did protest the war, the most prominent being Jane Addams. Born in 1860, Adams was a strong advocate for social reform, focusing on the wretched slums of the new industrial city, especially the plight of women and children. In 1889, she co-founded Hull House in Chicago, the first of what was called a settlement house to be founded in America. Part daycare, part employment office, part library, part social center, part school, part clinic, Hull House eventually filled 13 different buildings, employing a plethora of educators, social workers, and medical staff. Seriously, this, like, this thing was a century ahead of its time. Jane Addams was a household name, something akin to Florence Nightingale, as a strong-willed woman who got stuff done by sheer force of will. Jane Addams was America's most prominent female anti-imperialist. She joined the Anti-Imperialist League and spoke all over the country about the evils of the conflict. In 1899, she gave a speech called Democracy or Militarism. Addams claimed that the glorification of war would eat away at democratic ideals and America's soul. Let us not glorify the brutality. To protect the weak has always been the excuse of the ruler and tax gatherer, the chief, the king, the baron, and now at last of the white man. Simple people who read of carnage and bloodshed easily receive its suggestions. The newspapers, the theatrical posters, the street conversations for weeks had to do with war and bloodshed. The little children on the street played at war day after day, killing Spaniards. The human instinct which keeps in abeyance the tendency to cruelty gives way and the barbaric instinct asserts itself. Adams believed that American imperialism's glorification of violence and toxic masculinity was trickling back into society. After all, if violence can solve problems overseas, it's not much of a leap to think it can solve problems at home. In short, she said, war doesn't make people better, it makes people worse. Jane Addams remained a powerful voice for peace and anti-imperialism throughout her life, including World War I, which she was against. If other feminists had joined her, well, things might have been a little bit different. But as some women spoke for or against the war, others participated. For most of the last few decades, the army had been a frontier army fighting the American Indians, and army wives had usually lived on the frontier forts with their husbands. The army continued this practice in the Philippines, with limited numbers of army wives actually going overseas to the Philippines to the new American frontier. 
Before we go off the rails here, this was limited. There were only a limited number of army wives that actually made it to the Philippines. They were usually officers' wives, usually nowhere near the real fighting. But they were there, and they were kicking up a fuss. One American civilian woman, the wife of a government official, remembered these army wives. They are delightful people, a new and interesting variety of American. The women are vivacious, talkative, and always in a rush. They find the climate awful, but it certainly puts no damper on their gay spirits. The wives usually stayed far back from the fighting, but during the Moro War of 1902-1913, they did often live in frontline outposts, basically on the fob. John Norwood of the 23rd Infantry was stationed at the dangerous outpost of Malabang on Mindanao, and both he and his wife slept with pistols beneath their pillows in case of a Moro attack. Another army wife, Rita Hines, remembered the icy fear when she left her hut one morning and saw her little daughter showing her dolls to half a dozen Moro warriors. But they just said, you know, goodbye baby, and left when she was done with her speech. I don't know. Considering how creepy some kids can be with their dolls, maybe she scared them off. Maybe one of the dolls was Annabelle. I'd pay to see that horror movie. The wives had mixed thoughts on the Filipinos. Emily Conger, wife of Lieutenant Arthur Conger, noted water cure enthusiast, described the Filipinos with disgust and fear. She called them, A scrubby lot of hardly human things, stunted, gnarled pygmies with no hats or shoes and scarcely a rag of clothing. Generally speaking, army wives rarely fraternized with the Filipinos, usually staying within their own social groups. Then there were nurses. Before the Spanish-American War, all the U.S. Army's nurses were male, and there was not a professional nursing corps. They were just, like, drawn out from other units. This is also the age when women camp followers, who had traditionally been nurses within the army, had vanished. They weren't around anymore. But the nursing corps as it was was way too small to cope with a foreign war. And just like usually happens in wartime, the boundaries loosened and the women stepped up. Many of the women nurses were volunteers from Clara Barton's American Red Cross. Barton had gotten her start as the most famous volunteer nurse of the Civil War, nicknamed the American Florence Nightingale, and she was still alive, still running her organization. But just as happened with the Army's male soldiers, the ramshackle volunteers of the last war gave way to a new professional organization. Dr. Anita Newcomb McGee was one of the very few female doctors working in the United States in the 1890s. She was the founder of the Daughters of the American Revolution Hospital Corps, which trained volunteer nurses when the Spanish-American War broke out. Dr. McGee's skills came to the attention of the U.S. Army, and on August 29, 1898, she became the U.S. Regular Army's first female surgeon. With Dr. McGee's leadership and encouragement, the Army Nursing Corps was founded on February 2, 1901, with Dr. McGee at its head the first regular military service open to women in American history. To give an example of a typical nurse, Mary Claire Deasy worked at a military hospital in Tayabas province in southern Luzon throughout the height of the counterinsurgency war. She was originally one of Dr. McGee's volunteers, but on February 2, 1901, the founding of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps made her no longer a contracted civilian nurse, but a regular Almost as quickly as they had vanished, the women were returning to the army. While the nurses tended the sick and wounded, other women came to tend the mind. In August 1901, the U.S. Army transport ship Thomas arrived in Manila. 
Its passengers included 346 men and 180 women who would come to serve as teachers in America's colonial schools. These teachers would become known as the Thomasites, a term which became a catch-all for any American teachers in the Philippines. Schools were a big part of America's program for civilizing the Philippines, and teaching was associated with the feminine instinct, the counterbalance to the violence of men. American propaganda showed the buff male soldier his work done, handing over the pacified Philippines to a glowing white woman carrying a school book to educate the little brown brothers. Women were identified as the peaceful domestic side, the handmaiden of America's progressive imperialism. Teaching, like roads and vaccines and sanitation, is a good thing. But also like those things, in the context of the Philippine War, it was a tool for empire. The Thomasites were doing their level best to reshape the Filipinos in the American image. They only taught in English. They didn't have time to learn all these different languages, so they only taught in English. So they were essentially repressing the native languages and establishing English as the lingua franca of the Philippines. And they faced more challenges than most teachers. Felinda Rand was 23 years old, a grade school teacher from Massachusetts who decided to go to the Philippines. She found herself living in a Nipah hut, giving herself baths out of a kerosene can, working with only a couple of desks in a small room lacking even the most basic supplies. Half the time she didn't even have students because the Filipinos refused to send their children to the school. Felinda remembered. So our obliging Presidente sends out policemen every morning to round up children, and I arrive to find 80 or 100 cowering youngsters. The next morning, they hide, and the policemen get a new lot. Despite some very racist attitudes and some honestly patronizing viewpoints on the Filipinos, the Thomasites laid the foundations for much of the modern Philippines educational system. They are credited for founding universities and educational societies like the Nautical Society all over the islands. They are the founders. Modern Filipinos revere the Thomasites for their work and criticize them for their virulent racism and colonialist attitudes and their suppression of the native languages, a mark of the ambiguity at the heart of imperialism. Yes, good, also bad. So what's the real legacy of this? We'll get to all that in part four. If American women were constrained by gender roles, Filipinas had it even worse. The dominance of the Catholic Church and puritanical Spanish ideas of gender kept women essentially bound to the home, and even elite women were relatively uneducated compared to their American counterparts. Of course, the poverty-ridden life of the Filipina peasant was no joke either. Unlike America, where gender roles were still extremely prominent and enforced, Filipinas were not even expected to have a voice in public life at all. But revolutions are always a period of shifting social currents and attitudes, including in regards to gender. We've seen in this podcast how the Russian Revolution briefly opened the door for women's participation in the Russian army in a combat role, no less. And in the Philippine Revolution against the Spanish and the follow-on war against the Americans, Filipinas emerged as major players in the history of their nation. There's a whole pantheon of heroines of the Philippine Revolution, and their mythical portrayals usually harp on the theme of motherhood, often in the pose of Catholic saints and mother of Jesus, Santa Maria. Teodora Alonso became a heroine as the mother of the revolution's Christ-like sacrificial lamb, the great nationalist poet and writer Jose Rizal, fulfilling the role of Maria. 
There are many bronze statues of Rizal comforting his grief-stricken mother on his way to execution. She became a heroine after his death and a guiding light for the Philippine Revolution. The Katipunan, the Revolutionary Philippine Secret Society, included a women's chapter. Most of them were wives and relatives of the Katipunan's male leaders, but they still made a significant contribution to the movement. They shared ideas and philosophies, and they also sheltered and concealed the revolutionaries when the Spanish cracked down. After all, the Spanish never expected women to be involved because they didn't have agency, according to the Spanish. The Filipinos also have their own Betsy Ross, or three of them. While they were in exile in Hong Kong between the, Spanish, between the failure of the First Revolution and the Spanish-American War, Emilia Aguinaldo asked Doña Marcela Agoncillo, the wife of revolutionary diplomat Felipe Agoncillo, to sew the first flag for the Philippine Republic. Doña, her daughter Lorenza, and Jose Rizal's niece, Delfina de Navidad, sewed the flag that Aguinaldo would take with him to restart the revolution in 1898. It was this silk flag that he raised in his hometown of Cavite on the day he proclaimed Philippine independence. So yeah, they get three Betsy Rosses for the price of one. During the revolution itself, Filipinas tended to fulfill the traditional camp follower role much more closely than American women. This included all the support roles, sewing, cooking, cleaning, transport, supply, nursing, bringing food and water to the front lines. They even intervened in other ways, using that aura of feminine gentility and kindliness to bring to end various intercommand disputes, which, if you know the Philippine Revolution and the Philippine-American War, the Filipinos had a lot of intercommand disputes. The 25-year-old Nicolasa Dairit, confronted General Antonio Luna during one of his famous rages, convincing him to back down from a violent altercation with his fellow general. Maybe there should be more women in the command positions of the Philippine army. <laughs> and of course, many Filipinas served as nurses. Hilaria del Rosario, wife of Emilio Aguinaldo, became the head of Filipina nurses accompanying the Army of Liberation. She founded the Asociación de la Cruz Roja, the Red Cross Association, the ancestor of the modern Philippine Red Cross. So I guess Aguinaldo's wife was the Filipina equivalent of Clara Barton. On the island of Pane, the 45-year-old Nazaria Lagos became the head of the main hospital for Martin Delgado's insurgent forces. She built the hospital from basically nothing, sourcing everything herself, and she even recruited local traditional healers to provide natural re remedies for the alien insurgents during their long battle against the Americans. Nazaria and her hospital saved many lives. She is remembered in Philippine history as, okay, another comparison, the Florence Nightingale of Pane. You notice the trend here. I'm not making most of these names up. These are the real nicknames they're given by Philippine historians trying to accentuate their roles in the history of the Philippines. But Filipina women stepped beyond the traditional roles of camp followers, in some cases way, way beyond. They were often active assistants and participants in the guerrilla war from 1900 onward. They were messengers, spies, and saboteurs, passing information and carrying out tasks for the insurgents. One of them was Ageda Esteban, who worked to carry out secret documents and help craft war plans for attacks on positions in Cavite province. She was arrested in July 1900 after American intelligence services found makeshift grenades in her house. And there are multiple recorded cases from the Philippine-American War and the Philippine Revolution of Filipinas participating in combat. 
Multiple American soldiers remember being shocked to find at least one dead female combatant among the casualties of a skirmish. Almost every major encounter with the Muslim Moros had one anecdotal story of a barbaric Moro woman screaming and charging with her crease. Americans typically tended to see the presence of women on the battlefield as evidence of the Filipinos' barbaric nature. Like, only people without civilization, only barbarians, have women doing their fighting for them. Another Filipina, Trinidad Tayson, fought on the front lines of the Philippine Revolution, fighting in 12 battles and being wounded five times. But she is best remembered for her work as a nurse, and her nickname, the mother of Biak Nabato. Filipino historical memory still tries to shoehorn most of these women into the mother role, the traditional role, even when they were active combatants. There were at least two Filipinas who became famous not only for fighting the Americans, but assuming leadership roles. This was so far outside the traditional Philippine gender roles that it's honestly amazing. The most famous was Teresa Magbanwa y Farades, dubbed the Visayan Joan of Arc. Yeah, another comparison, I know. The Visayan Joan of Arc. I didn't make up these nicknames, most of them. Teresa was the wife of a wealthy landowner in the city of Iloilo on Pane. She was one of the few women to join the Pane chapter of the Katipunan. When the Philippine Revolution broke out, the 31-year-old Teresa defied her husband's authority, asked for, and somehow received a military command. It helped that her uncle was the local jefe. It's not what you know, but who you know, right? Teresa Magbanwa led her Bolo Battalion on horseback and won two separate battles where she was in independent command, the battles of Barrio Yoting and Sapong Hills. She and her battalion were part of the triumphant capture of Iloilo from the Spanish, and later a key part of the resistance to American forces on Pane, including the Battle of Iloilo where they lost it again. <laughs> Her forces fought the conventional and the guerrilla war, in which she lost both of her younger brothers. Her Bolo battalion only laid down its arms in late 1900, and Teresa retired to her farm. She was remembered by the nickname Nane Isa or Ne Isa, which meant Mother Isa, Isa being short for Teresa. See, even as a military leader, she couldn't escape the motherly association of Filipina womanhood. Teresa Magbanwa would also participate in the war against the Philippines' last great imperial conqueror. She was in her 70s but still active in the 1940s when she organized and financed local guerrillas against the imperial Japanese. Teresa's legacy is matched only by Ageda Kahabagan, the, wait for it, Tagalog Joan of Arc. Unlike Teresa, Ageda Cajabagan is confirmed to have received a general's commission from Emilio Aguinaldo himself for her service against the Spanish and the Americans. Generela Ageda led forces in southern Luzon, riding around on horseback, dressed in white, armed with a bolo in one hand and a rifle in the other. The sources on her aren't as good as the ones on Teresa, and neither is really acknowledged in broader Filipino historiography. They were just too far outside the gender norms for the Filipinos to figure out what to do with them. The Filipinas who fought were exceptions to the general rule. The women who supported, assisted, and worked behind the lines were much more numerous and are much more typical of the Filipina experience. But Filipinas emerged into the public sphere for the first time in the wake of the Philippine Revolution, and they would never leave it. While later Filipino historians tended to downplay or discount their contributions, the Philippine Revolution and the war with the Americans was the birth of what we might call Filipina feminism. But for many Filipinas, their experience was less as members of a resistance and more as the victims of empire. 
Women were made homeless by burnings, abused, mistreated, and sometimes raped. U.S. Army fraternization with Filipinas was very common. Given the power differential at work here, it's hard not to see these relationships as, well, dubiously consensual. It was common for a soldier to have a Filipina girlfriend, often referred to as a querida, basically dear or girlfriend, or less pleasantly as a squall, an old term for an American Indian woman from the frontier. Private Richard Johnson, a Buffalo soldier of the 25th Infantry, remembered arriving to his duty station and finding that most of his new comrades were shacked up with a Filipina woman. And if Filipinas weren't your speed, there were plenty of prostitutes in the larger cities, especially Manila. One soldier of the 15th Infantry, Edgar H. Price, remembered going to the brothels in Manila. The army catered to the men's sex drive so much that they literally had condom stations set up outside the red light district. Price remembered a veteran who gave him some pretty disgusting and creepy advice. The goo-goo girls are the best screwing, but the Japanese are the cleanest. Only they're expensive and they're cold. Stay away from Chinese. Oh yeah, this dude sounds like a catch. Apparently the Chinese women were well known for a nasty strain of VD. To be fair though, this guy kind of sounds like half the people on Xbox Live in the 21st century, so who knows. The future could be hard for Filipinas who consorted with the Americans. When his 15th Infantry Regiment left the Philippines, Private Price was heartbroken to see a line of abandoned Filipina girlfriends waving goodbye, many clutching the hands of little red-headed or blonde children. I wonder what their lives were like, how they went home to their families, how their kids grew up in this very racialized society. They had been taken for convenience, used, and abandoned by their boyfriends, just like Vietnamese women several decades later. A fitting analogy, if there ever was one, for American empire. American women and Filipina women were both courageous, assertive, and diverse in their ambitions and dreams, breaking the gender roles that society had assigned them. They lived incredible lives and had incredible stories. But as much as we all love to go hashtag girl boss about any of these women, it's impossible to ignore the context. At the end of the day, the women of the Philippine War would be defined less by their gender and more by their place in the hierarchy of empire. The battle was less between men and women than the colonizers and the colonized. In 1902, Filipina patriot Clemencia Lopez arrived in the United States to lobby on behalf of Philippine independence and for her three brothers thrown into prison in Batangas province. Clemencia spoke to multiple suffragist groups trying to appeal to her American, her American sisters to stand up for the rights of Philippine women as well. She said... I believe that we are both striving for much the same object. You for the right to take part in national life. We for the right to have a national life to take part in. She begged her American sisters for their support, telling them about the miserable condition of the women of my country. Thousands have been widowed, orphaned, left alone and homeless, exposed and in the greatest misery. But American feminists gave Clemencia Lopez the cold shoulder. Her cause was not their cause. Even though Elizabeth Cady Stanton had once said that women of all nationalities had a common bond between them, a universal sense of injustice, she and the rest failed to live up to those ideals. When the call came, American women turned out to be just as imperialist as the men who denied them the vote. For all the calls of international sisterhood, for all the glass ceilings they broke, 
for all the criticisms of Jane Addams and all the pleas of Clemencia Lopez, American women aligned themselves with American men in the cause of progress and empire. Thanks a bunch for listening today. I'm sorry to be bumming you out right before the holidays, but if you think that's bad, wait till Philippine War Part 4, A Howling Wilderness. Small note, Part 4 may be delayed. I am in the process of moving from Georgia to Wisconsin, and if you say James for moving simple, I'll just remind you what Klauswitz said. The simplest things are very difficult, so I'm working on it. So there may be delays, but hopefully not. Either way, if you like what you've heard today, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources under the Big Philippine War source post. I'm always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, though who knows for how long. You can email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I've gotten some emails and messages I haven't gotten to just yet in the last few days. I promise I will. I'm just moving. <laughs> Anyway, don't forget to look out for the thrilling and upsetting finale coming up in Philippine War Part 4, A Howling Wilderness. See you then, right here on Unknown Soldiers.